Okay, everybody, welcome to episode two of the rebooted, spectacular, informative Network Age podcast. And I'm here with my co-hosts, Timluk Miptav and Nilran Marduks. And we're really excited to talk to you about what we believe are the or will be the catalysts for this shift into the network age. I think in previous pods and in general in the space, we've talked before about the network age as being something that comes out of technology, about an evolution in software, and all of those things are definitely true, but I think we're really interested in examining the larger shifts that have occurred and will be required in social and national organization to move into the network age. So guys, I'm curious what you think about where we were, what's happened, and where we're going. Yeah, so where we were was up until uh, up until COVID, we were in this thing where as someone who was trying probably too early to live in a network age kind of way, uh, I was always, you know, lamenting that everyone was living in, you know, San Francisco or New York and that tech was like very physically located. And I think that it wasn't until COVID that we got a catalyst, like that we got a catalyst to change that. And so that gets that sort of gets me thinking that, you know, tech itself, even though it was advancing in that time, isn't the only catalyst that can jump things into a new track or be or be a big factor. And I think, Phil, you've been especially like thinking on those lines as you like, you know, in the last like year or two have really like, you know, shifted your life in that direction. Is that right? Yeah, I think before COVID, it was just sort of like I had to be in a major city. So all of my discussions and at the time I was married. So all these discussions with my ex-wife were about like where in the U.S. we can live. And it was always like, OK, we have to pick from like five cities, right? There's like New York, Boston, SF, L.A., and maybe one or two others that are even options. So we didn't really have it. it there just wasn't like jobs available easily in other places um, that were like, you know, that had any sort of like good restaurant scenes, good network effects, existing friends there. So, yeah, the world felt really small and it felt like you pretty much had to pick from five countries in the U.S. and five cities in the U.S. Is the network age sort of a, a giant midlife crisis for all the, the millennials who have money and, and now want to leave their wives and travel abroad? <laughs> we actually, uh, there's a surprisingly large number of Zoomers in this. So people who are like 22 and like wanted to get out of the system at an incredibly young age. So yeah, it's weirdly like both, I would say, people hitting around 30, the millennials, as well as incredibly like young people that like have none of this sort of baggage of like houses and wives that the millennials <laughs> yeah. have exiting. That's nice. Well, for, for those of us that are, are baggage laden, um, I consider myself <laughs> among them, you know, COVID, COVID has been talked about, you know, to death in so many ways, but I think it really is impossible to understate the effect that it had as this disruptor for those of us who are stuck somewhat in this system and not only did really obvious things like uh, expanding remote work, but it changed the way that people thought about how they could organize their lives. Yeah, I think like, I mean, COVID did a few things, right? I talked about it on the last podcast where like for me, you know, my side business, side hustle after work was, was these Airbnbs. 
and it just like removed all of those bookings. So it's sort of like, I don't know. I think it, it was sort of like honestly setting off a nuclear bomb where everyone's just sort of looking around afterwards and like, okay, what do we have? Like, let's question all assumptions. So, you know, I think, you know, talking to a lot of other people here as well, like people just started being like, okay, what's the global picture? Where can I live? What places are even open? And that's, that's something we forget about like right now in 2022, like everywhere, most places are open. I mean, bizarrely, Asia kind of isn't still like, even though it's been like three years. Um, so that is worth kind of commenting on. But at the time in 2020, when I was looking to go remote and start living abroad, there really weren't many places open. So it kind of created this question of, you know, where can I even like, can I get across borders? You know, how do I get across borders? And it started, that started getting me down sort of the path of residencies. Okay. If my country shuts its borders, how do I get out? Do I need a residency card abroad? And that's something, Tim, you probably had a different perspective on just because you're, you're already living in Ukraine full time at that point at COVID. Yeah. So one thing that you mentioned there, Nilrun, is the fact that like COVID dropped a nuclear bomb on a lot of things. And for me, that's one of the things that was the big, one of the biggest catalysts about COVID was that it proved concept that society, especially, uh, you know, including high-end society, could completely reorient modes of consumption, work, interaction in an incredibly short period of time. We're talking on the order of weeks or months for an entire society to rearrange. And there were some big fallouts from that economically that we, you know, we could talk about, you know, ranging from needing to print a lot of money to do that to supply chains getting messed up by that dislocation. But I mean, as far as such huge transitions go, we're two years plus into it now. And a lot of the stuff has been sticky. And so I think that caused me to overestimate the speed that other changes could happen with. But I do think that it proved concept in, in some ways that if some if certain fundamental underlying factors change, stuff can change really rapidly. Very, very rapidly. Yeah. And I, I'm just thinking back to like the experience of COVID because like I remember I think we and a few other people were chatting about, you know, like the what was it? The Diamond Princess cases that break out on the cruise ship. And then we were looking at Italy number numbers about COVID deaths and cases. But then it was just like sudden moment, I think it was like around March 18th in Boston, where, um, you know, I'd been called in, I'd been working in healthcare tech. So we were looking at COVID and we were looking at basically like the cases and we were trying to like start modeling the impact to our tech business. Uh, you know, it's a healthcare tech business. So like it was potentially very disruptive. So we started modeling that maybe a week before everyone went remote. And then I remember one day we were just like going into the office and it was like, hey, we're going to leave early and like we we're probably going to be remote for like a week. And everyone's like, okay, you know, we've done that before. Like I've worked from Europe one time when I went to your wedding, for example, Tim Luck, I worked a few days in Europe and it's like, all right, no big deal. But then it just like continued and there really wasn't any disruption. Um, there wasn't disruption pretty much at all. But I think the kind of like weird thing was just how suddenly like within about 24 hours, it went from like life is normal to just we are remote. We don't know when that will end. Every restaurant is closed. Uh, like, just go work from your apartment and, like, hope for the best. It was, like, very sudden. I'm curious uh, to ask both of you guys, 
what you think about COVID has been sticky and what you think has largely returned to the old way of doing business because everything you said about how quickly society reoriented itself is true, even if there were massive speed bumps on the way. But for me, my life has basically gone back to the way it was beforehand. Admittedly, I was working remotely, but you know, my girlfriend works at a you know, small town ad agency, a job that she certainly doesn't need to be in person, but the everyone is insisting that people come in and work in person. I found that for friends who are lawyers or across a lot of jobs, there is a, has been a real push in sectors outside of tech, and perhaps that's the exception, to bring things back into the old way of doing it. So what parts of this future network age catalyzed by COVID have remained? What parts are people resisting? And, and how do you think that will play out? What's remained is sort of the flexibility and the kind of questioning of all assumptions. Like, even though some people have returned to offices, it's not, you know, total, like, overall office capacity is at half. Like, SF is at less than half of pre-COVID office um, occupancy rates. It's the same in New York, Philadelphia, most of the major cities. So just from, like, a macro level, only half of the people are back in the office. Everyone else is remote. So those are, like, those are just huge numbers. Compare that to, like, pre-COVID, you know, I think it was maybe like 5% or less working remote, and we're still at like over half in major cities. Um, and then at the same time, even though some people have returned, it's this open dialogue between bosses and employees about like, hey, can we get people back in the office? How much? Is it flexible? And what I saw kind of happening is some people went remote permanently. It's still very, very large numbers. Um, and then some people are in this sort of flexible, I go into the office like once or twice a week. So I still live near the same city I lived at before. I'm still near the same office. But I would say like the shift in how we work and how we think about work has been uh, persistent even three, almost three years in. I'm kind of a tech maximalist in the sense that I think that like most future productivity will be driven by software. So I think that that biases me towards looking more at the tech angle of it. And from that angle, it's been extremely persistent. Essentially, developers have enough negotiating power because what they do is so hard if they're reasonably good that it, companies have not been able to get them back into the office in any reasonable way. And instead, what they would do is just quit and go to other jobs. Uh, their salaries also uh, did really well during COVID, interestingly, because it pushed things even more in a softwareized direction and raised demand even higher. So they didn't necessarily give up very much for that. And as you know, Nil Run notes, that also led to sort of tech-heavy cities like San Francisco getting really hollowed out in, in combination with you know the city completely going to shit. Um, on the non-tech side, I agree with you, Bitchell, that it's been less less sticky. I think Nil Run is right that it's created this sort of feeling in people's minds that you can change it if necessary. I think it's given a little bit more negotiating power at a micro level for people with their employers if what they're doing is considered valuable enough. And also at a macro level where I think companies are a lot more willing uh, and people to shift regions, especially within the US, but we may soon see globally if they feel like they're not getting a good enough deal where they are. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense to me because when we talk about the network age, it's it's larger than just a technological change, even if it is 
pushed forward by software, there really has to be a shift in how large groups of people are conceptualizing the way they work and live. And remote work, you know, was already possible, right? I was working remotely. Of course, living abroad and, and the these larger ideas take more change, but it's not as if that alone is enough to be a catalyst for this shift, you know, I, but I think some of the other things that we associate with COVID, the supply chain issues, the incredible debt that has been run up and printing of money has made people question economic systems more largely. And that is a real part of Web3, right, is that we're developing new ways to conceptualize how we move money and how stateless currencies and economies operate. Yeah. So if we're, if I'm going to talk in the future about reasons that I'm actually fairly optimistic, even from a specifically U.S. economic perspective, a lot of it has to do with how COVID showed that we can shift things around fairly rapidly. And if, you know, to the degree that something like, you know, reindustrialization is necessary or writing down debts in various ways, I, I think there actually is a lot of ability to do pretty novel arrangements pretty fast. I think the other thing that you mentioned is how you were working remotely before. And one thing I noticed a lot is that even or especially in tech pre-COVID, there had been everyone had done this sort of cost-benefit analysis of remote work at the company level very often. And you were actually even at the individual level, if you asked programmers, most people would actually come out maybe somewhat against remote work. And usually what had happened is that because they were mostly working on site, they were they knew all of the benefits of being in person and a lot of the costs of being remote and could sort of rattle those off. But the negatives of being in person were much more subtle or at least not sort of visible every day and the positives of remote work weren't there. And I think at the least in tech, COVID kind of forced this, that people actually had to be like, oh, actually there are these positives of working remotely and actually, you know, commuting every day for X amount of time and just wasting that part of the day listening to podcasts like this one uh, kind of did suck. And so I think at least it also, it sort of brought a bigger, a better balance towards people's cost benefit calculations around remote work. I think it also, like, what I, I observed this before, because, like, one of my bosses in 2018 used to work remotely on Fridays, and it was just kind of annoying. So you had to, like, loop in the one person who was remote, whereas now, like, even the people who live near the office and go in occasionally are still remote, like, three or four days a week. And so the going assumption of business in the U.S. is, like, we're going to have to, like, have a... Um, like a Zoom window open for the people who are remote. So every single meeting has that assumption. There's never an assumption of like every person will be in person during all these meetings. That's just completely changed forever. And so even having, you know, it probably only takes about 10 to 20% of your workforce being remote all the time um, to just shift the kind of corporate culture to expecting that like, hey, we have to have a Zoom line open because like, a number of core people are going to be calling in. They're not going to all be in person anymore. I think also it just really showed how much people value their own time and autonomy and independence more than any of the sort of fun startup perks that you can have. You know, you could have as many kombucha as on tap or ping pong in the office, but or, you know, algorithm optimized 
cookies or something. Like they've got a Google with <laughs> secret passages everywhere. And I you know I visited a friend on the Google campus, and he was it was like he was showing me his college clubhouse. And he was just so excited, and you know couldn't see the fact that it was like, oh, why are they offering you all these things? Why are they giving you this incredible lunch? So you sit around with people and keep working the entire time, and there's just no escape. And I think people, even people who are really excited about work and want to make it a huge part of their lives, want to be in control of how they do it and not feel like they're getting manipulated by, you know, uh, the, the carrot as opposed to the stick. I've written a lot recently on my Twitter about, you know, how devs play a big role in the economy and are alternately in my more dystopian, you know, framings like oil or more positively like, <laughs> you know, valuable profession, professional athletes. And I think in the athlete one, I think there was this understanding that, it, from from companies like Google that it was really important to make devs feel wanted and good and they would do that mostly through special they want to be their special little boy right exactly and like they were doing it through these perks and through money but the actual job satisfaction is pretty bad because the, what you're doing is not very interesting you're just optimizing ad tech over and over again um, and so they were you know they were a little stuck there and I, I do think that COVID and it's sort of blowing up of a lot of arrangements opened up the design space even for things like dev satisfaction. And as you said, showed that what people really liked was autonomy, interesting living arrangements that match what they want much more so than whatever clubhouse foosball, like forever, you know, 19. I think the clubhouses are coming back though. Like, yeah, they're not going to all be in Silicon Valley. They definitely won't be, but like... You want to build a little clubhouse in El Salvador. Yeah, people want clubhouses. Like the reality is, uh, you know, you want a clubhouse that you actually get to opt into and that you can, you know, potentially have choice in clubhouses. That's what the devs want. Um, so like every clubhouse can be a little bit different. But like, you know, this this isn't... There, the, Google kind of recognized sort of a very key source of like a key insight into software development. And I think they had come out with a paper pretty early on um, actually about two types of like autists, the ones you fire and the ones you keep. Um, <laughs> and the reality is just like some people don't, aren't able to like, don't want to manage the kind of stupid, boring logistics of life, like making car payments. I know one Urbit dev who had their Tesla repoed because they forgot to make payments. I've known like, you know, this, this is actually incredibly common. So you have to recognize like there are huge differences in people and some people want to outsource a lot of the little minutia of life. And that's, that's fine. Like, that's why we have services. That's like, you can easily build a lifestyle around that where you just pay a monthly fee, like almost like booking a month in a Selena, um, that sort of upscale community house vibe. Like that's why those are booming. It's they, you know, they open a new one every week. They're at a billion dollar valuation. It's because a lot of people don't want to manage all these little things. They want to have uh, where they live, where they work, and where they socialize in the same place. So I actually think. I think there's going to be privatization of the kind of, it sounds weird, but like privatization of the Google model. Of course, they were sort of private, um, but I think we'll see a lot of experimentation around that exact thing. I think you mean more local and small scale as opposed to their sort of massive industrial scale. And yeah, yeah I, exactly. I don't, I don't want to denigrate what they did in the sense that I think they were onto something. I think they were just sort of onto the wrong things and it had become lame. Like, I think they were doing the right thing, but it was lame. So my biggest takeaway from COVID, if we're summing this up, is that 
people realized at all levels, at the, uh, you know, personal level, company level, and then up to, you know, very geopolitical government levels, that all arrangements are kind of up for grabs if you need them to be in a way that we haven't really seen a lot in the past outside of wars in terms of the suddenness. And I think that leads really well into our most recent big catalyst for the network age, which was an actual war. Yeah, the Russia-Ukraine war, I think it, it can't be understated how much that has changed for the people who work and live in the tech world about what they understand is, you know, are promises being made about the way that nations and economies are going to relate to each other and how quickly those can be broken. I'll admit to being one of the people who up until the last second thought there was no way that Russia was going to invade or if they were, they weren't going to go past the separatist regions in the east. And, you know, Tim, look, I remember I had just started working for you when this happened, and I called you, I think, to see if you'd read some dumb little blog post I was drafting, and you, you answered and said, hey, yeah, man, I'm, I'm kind of in the car driving away from the invasion, and I, I just haven't gotten to it yet. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, you know, this is, this is really going on. This is happening. And, you know, you saw it better than anybody else. Yeah, I was in a very similar situation to you where I remember now when we started talking about working on Ukbar, I was in Lviv hanging out, waiting for, you know, maybe an invasion. And then actually I went back to Kiev after that because I thought that there would not be an invasion. So I was very much in your boat in terms of thinking that it would be at most limited to the separatist regions. And I think, man, a lot of things got thrown into the air by that, that we almost take for granted so much now, now that it's been almost six months, that it might be useful to recap them. I think just one for a certain type of contrarian, there was this idea that if the US intelligence community is pitching it really hard, mm-hmm. then it must, you know, then it must be sort of fake, sort of like, you know, the Colin so Powell being lied to. type reasoning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, really, it it was, yeah, there definitely was a lot of that. And I think then there, and then seeing firsthand that, oh, no, they pretty much, they were exactly right. It, It changes how you see things. But even down to thinking things like, okay, most of these countries are probably sort of all the same at the end of the day in terms of how they want to relate economically. I think that was blown out of the water and changes how people see Russia and China. I think from a competence level, we've seen how much worse Russian equipment and logistics are relative to anything that, you know, Americans and Europeans can imagine, that that's also thrown a lot of things into question and made me really have to just have to sort of reorient a lot to the U.S. and people who, you know, work in the U.S. uh, as a, you know, technological center. It's just very stark. War, I think wars are always this really stark visualization of you have all these ideas going into it and then, you know, no plan survives contact with the enemy, very literally. You just have to completely reevaluate a lot of what you thought was true in terms of technical capabilities. And then finally, I think the obvious big thing is how much soft power the U.S. and Europe and sort of Anglosphere have been able to exert in terms of unifying all their people without even necessarily having to do lots of coercion. I think the situation, yeah, is, was basically, I mean, think about it. We all thought Russia's military was really strong. They had won the Georgia War. They had just suppressed a color revolution in Kazakhstan. Russia seemed like it had this modern, efficient army. We kind of forgot that, like, in general, Russia doesn't actually win its wars. Like, Finland in 1939, it got, like, 
kind of whooped, uh, whooped in a large extent. But taking like looking at this macro picture, there was basically like everyone was starting to ally against the U.S. after the Afghan pullout. So like Saudi Arabia is now making a, was making alliance with Russia and China. It looks like Ray Dalio's view of this um, Eurasian century was actually going to happen. And I think like you know looking at that. I think your point about culture is so accurate because, like, I was living in Ukraine as well in 2021, and, like, I was always struck by how much they liked American culture. And I sort of underestimated the sort of geopolitical implications of that, where all of Europe was willing to basically ally against their standard of living interests. You know, like, of course, uh, energy has spiked. You know, gasoline's like $10 a gallon there. They might not have electricity for the winter, although I think that's being overblown, certainly. But basically, we saw that the U.S. was able to uh, very, very quickly, like in the order of, I think, two days, get all of its allies united against Russia. Uh, And then, you know, critically, it moved off of the foreign exchange um, standard. So like the petrodollar, as we knew it, is like dead as of, I think, February 26, 2022. And that happened so quickly. And even people were underestimating that, too. They're like, oh, you know, Jamie Dimon and the bankers aren't we're not going to sanction Russia because that'll hurt the banks. But like we we sanctioned Russia like in two days. That's how quickly it moved. One funny thing about Russian wars, if you're mentioning Finland, if you actually go and look at the Wikipedia pages for the Crimean War, uh, the Russo-Japanese War, uh, you know, the Fed, then the 1939 Finland War, uh, pretty much like every offensive sort of offensive war they've done, like the Wikipedia and even, you know, this most recent one, like the Wikipedia pages basically always read the same in terms of like everyone thinking they're really strong and then just having horrific logistical issues. W- uh, sort of sort of a side topic, but it's I wonder it's if this is all sort of like, you know, a cultural hangover from this deep resentment they have that everyone thinks that the U.S. won World War II. Like, if you ever go through Russia, they're, they're all, it's what, this national obsession that, you know, the, the mother Russia suffered and, you know, threw bodies oh at uh, cannon fodder. Everyone oh, yeah. were all eating boots. And so they had to, you know, they keep invading to try to... Uh, in you know fight that understanding um, in reverse i'm gonna i'm just gonna go off here for a second geopolitically so i would say like if you look at the actual history of world war ii it's pretty much like germany rolls them and then russia gets infinite lend lease from the u.s in terms of like everything uh like you know people were going without butter in america to like ship it over to the soviet union uh their little internal technological capability and completely you know relied on american production and technical know-how in that and in this war that's been flipped where essentially ukraine is getting that lend lease and we're see- we're seeing the results russia's a pathetic like slave culture well what what you're saying though is is all true with regards to this most recent war is that i i think there was a real belief and certainly if you talk to the average you know normal enough intelligent person in the u.s that u.s power was falling there was a need to consolidate you know even something as simple as i feel like so many americans i know think that everyone abroad hates them which is something that i really haven't seen and then the there is a this point where all right it turns out that everyone actually does want to ally with the u.s and and put a stop to this and it's just you know at a very basic level a shifting of framework in the the global economy. One thing, though, that I do want to 
talk about, and that's kind of difficult for me in the wake of this, is that I'm absolutely not a U.S. government cheerleader. I don't, I, I don't particularly love them. <laughs> I didn't particularly love them before the war. I don't now. And so what I'm most interested in is that I think this is reoriented, is that it's reoriented my view of where power comes from. And power very much seems to come from sort of uh, culture, knowledge configurations, ability to you know, manipulate information, software, um, people, things like that. And I do think that that's now just so heavily aligned, especially with the U.S., even with people who you know, don't support the U.S. government politically, that I've definitely turned a lot of my sights more west for the future. I think it's this idea that we've talked about a little bit with the mundane circularity, uh, singularity. We've also talked about digital America. So, like, I think we should, you know, we, we've talked about it internally, but I think this concept of, like, digital America, where it's less, like, about the United States government, it's more about sort of, like, soft power, organizational capability, um, and kind of culture, as well as kind of pulling in um, software talent into sort of this Anglo-American sphere of influence. Like, if you look at the top software production, it's, like, so heavily driven by Anglo-Americans and people who have kind of, like, either moved into that sphere or, like, want to. So it's it's this really fascinating thing where if, you know, if you take, like, the old, the, the kind of, like, boomer framing of the world it's all about like resources it's all about oil and manufacturing and like that and then what we really see is actually it's like way more about sort of soft power ability to quickly direct um to like sanction your enemies immediately to create new alliances like look at china's position you know it people were talking about how strong china was and now like it looks incredibly vulnerable you know they're having domestic um, economic issues, but also you could basically move their manufacturing because manufacturing has become more commoditized due to computing. And then also like, you know, they're hedged in through a very um, sort of organic set of alliances where people don't want to ally with China. Yeah, I think what we're seeing here is that some places are too obsessed with being hard and you want to be soft, I think is is what we're really getting at here. But I, I, I do Flaccid, think, yeah, yeah I, if you haven't, you've come here for the dick jokes, I assume everybody listening. But I do think that what you're saying is really interesting in the context of this idea of the network age, where we are perhaps seeing a, re, uh, a reconsolidation of cultural power, soft power, technical and technological influence within a system that is, moving away from national identities or even, you know, people who are potentially abdicating their citizenship. And so when we think about the network age, how do you guys think that a Western-centered technological cultural power works with a sort of restructuring of, you know, states and, and national identities at the same time? So in my case, the way I've thought of this the most is that this whole episode has reoriented me towards the type of towards wanting to interact with and sort of build things with the type of person who would have tried to move to San Francisco a few years now, but isn't necessarily, you know, in love with having a U.S. passport or something. And I think that one interesting thing about all this is that there's a ton of talent globally, and a lot of it either 
comes to the U.S. or is very much in that sphere in terms of who it interacts with, you know, even on Twitter or something like that. And I think that, you know, just for me, what I'm what I'm trying to do is find ways to organize those people, connect with them. But then the network age part is all about giving them alternatives to having to realize that by moving to San Francisco. And so if I wanted to like sort of crystallize what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to find a way to give people options, both in terms of their online and sort of business, like monetary lives, especially devs, and then also options for where they can go in the world and physically be so that we can, you know, sort of move away from that U.S. monopoly, uh, that sort of U.S. physical monopoly, while maintaining, you know, the best parts of, I don't know, I think I think the American spirit is real. I would have laughed at that, you know, maybe a couple of years ago, but I do think it's a real thing and I want to capture it. I think we kind of noticed this uh, with the Russians, too, and how they frame their war propaganda. But, like, you know, Russians, we've they're, like, very into just, like, Gucci and yachts. They're, like, not really about, they're really not nearly as idealistic. Um, and so I think a lot of Americans actually kind of struggle with even understanding that. Just to interrupt that one real quick, uh, and because I think it helps make my point, I think that at the sort of the maybe stereotypical Russian levels or at the like, you know, oligarch levels or sort of a random upper middle class person in Moscow, that might be true. There are substantial numbers of Russians, of course, and people in that sphere who are into sort of, you know, the more American productive frontier spirit. I mean, I think we'll get into tornado cash later, but I think the devs involved were Russians uh, who were, you know, mostly hanging out true. in and American Telegram, Europe. And Telegram also Russian engineers. So yeah, from an engineering perspective, yeah, yes, I'm not agree with that. I'm not, yeah. turning, I'm not turning this into like, sort of a racial ethnic thing it's actually much more it actually sort of makes my point that you know I'm, I'm most interested in building stuff with the people who are spiritually american and to the degree mm. that you know there's a dan Bilzerian american who's obsessed with like you know bitches and yachts they're, they're much less interesting to me and to me they're yeah. basically sort of this like bad russian oligarch stereotype i mean this is really just goes to the point that there are people you want to work with and spend time with and interact with all over the world. And now we are more able than ever through our networking tools to find those people, to talk to them. And there is a step left to be taken that allows you to build a what like personal relationship with them, legal relationship with them, a you know, a relationship that involves being part of a network larger than just being able to hang out online. Exactly. And the cost to those people doing, like, getting involved is really low. Like, all they need, again, is that internet connection, the laptop. So not only can we discover them, but, like, we can easily work with them. And, like, you know, you were already working with Tim when Tim was in Ukraine, right? And you were in Montana. So there's there was already that dynamic. But now we can also basically work with people in countries that weren't really that able to industrialize. Like, even a country like Argentina, there's so much talented... Um, tech talent there, but because of like their ridiculous mismanagement of government, uh, you can't, we couldn't really do business with them even 10, 20 years ago. And now, um, you know, now it's very easy to work with them. I think one thing that also we haven't quite touched on though yet is this idea of the debt cycle. Ray Dalio talks about it. Uh, Luke Groman talks about it. It's basically that like there's usually large, uh, there's sort of a buildup of debt over like a 70 to 80 year period. And you kind of like 
you can kind of imagine it as you're kicking the can down the road and you keep kicking and kicking, but then eventually like the can, like either your foot is broken or the can's like, uh, you just get tired and you can't kick it any further. And I think that's, you know, I think there's good evidence that we're like reaching that point. Like we're already doing a lot of actions related to this. Like we have rent moratoriums, mortgage moratoriums, uh, student loan moratoriums. So we're already like clearly sort of somewhat recognizing that the debt load is massive. Um, and I'm curious just to get your guys' thoughts on like this idea of the debt cycle. Like, do you guys think we're, are we at the end of this debt cycle? Can we kick it further? Um, is this a problem? How would we deal with it, Tim? Hmm, that's a, that's a big one. I should start by saying that when COVID started and into 2021, I was very much on the side of more or less America will collapse financially. And a big reason for that was that it seemed like there was enough sort of oomph in the rest of the world to have a strong negotiating position while that was happening to the US. And that what I mean by that is Europe was a, you know, a net exporter. So they, they basically, Europe produces a lot of stuff for the world in much the same way that China does, who was another one there. And then obviously you had, you know, Eurasia um, or just the Asian continent with Russia and other countries in there uh, and the Middle East providing lots of energy. And I thought that, you know, all those countries would sort of be able to form a, you know, enough of a block to be able to negotiate a good deal as the U.S. ran down. And if we're going to talk about kicking the can down the road, one of the benefits of kicking the can down the road is that if you keep kicking and stay alive, something good might happen. Like you might catch a break. <laughs> yeah. And like it's, it's very, and actually to not to go too far off topic, but I actually think that's very much what the current Russian strategy is in the war right now is to keep kicking that can and hope something happens because the situation's not great for them. But the U.S., I think, successful that's actually and this has been you know the uk's strategy forever they've pulled like multiple rabbits out of their hats in the last hundred years you know post-world war one and with regards to like not completely collapsing uh and being able to sort of take advantage of renegotiations after wars but in this case what we have is that we went from a situation where maybe a year ago china russia energy countries and the industrial producing countries of europe were very much in the driver's seat to this completely flipped situation where russia found new and exciting ways to collapse china is like locking itself down and like losing productivity while you know simultaneously getting more belligerent and cutting itself off culturally from the world uh, Europe is, you know, facing, you know, serious economic problems where Germany's now has like, you know, a trade deficit, which is pretty insane. And so suddenly in the middle of all that, even though the U.S. is still in a pretty bad fiscal and debt situation, um, they, they actually are in a much better situation to negotiate terms in much the same way that you see in wars where one, you know, you have a lot of parties go into the war and, you know, they all come out of it pretty battered, but, you know, one can negotiate terms. Now, I don't know that that makes me super bullish on, you know, specific U.S. political uh, configurations, but it changes it changes a lot of stuff. And I think that at the very least, the board has been substantially realigned. And I think we're seeing that with people who thought that, en like, you know, energy was so much of a thing, seeing that that wasn't, you know, quite the full checkmate thing that a lot of people would have thought. So I'm curious how this reorientation toward our understanding of the way trade and the global economy and 
energy and the debt cycle are working, what you guys think this means for the network age? Like, I, what about this do you think is driving a, a movement toward being able to, you know, a borderless society or a society linked by technology and software instead of these traditional national boundaries? Well, the advantage to exit is now like way higher. Like Europe is broke. They already have really high taxes. Um, and they're, you know, they just arrested developers involved with tornado cash. Like the developers of a de decentralized software just got arrested. Like the European powers, they're, they're kind of like, you know, we both, there's sort of like two things happening at the same time. Like I agree with Tim that the U.S. has more power now and has more options. Uh, the board has been reconfigured. The U.S. is now like extremely allied with Europe. Interestingly, it's like now more allied with like Eastern Europe because those are the countries that were like already conquered by Russia and like never want to be conquered by Russia again. So they'll, they don't really care about standard of living. Um, so, yeah, the board's changed, but at the same time, like, you do have this debt load. Um, it has to be worked out in some ways. And the escape, you know, like, this one analogy I liked that the Bitcoin maxis had is, like, Bitcoin is sort of, like, the pressure valve. Um, and, like, it's almost like the, or, like, the escape hatch. Like, crypto almost is the escape hatch. And I think what we're seeing is basically... Um, the rewards to taking that escape hatch now are like massive. Um, but at the same time, people, especially in sort of the US and the West are trying to like remove that escape hatch so that they can do monetary repression. That's sort of the kind of long-term picture I'm seeing right now. I would say it in terms of what's changed that as you said, if there is going, and it looks like there will be some kind of debt reconfiguration that makes crypto more attractive. And I think particularly post-merge ETH is set to do really, really well for a variety of reasons. And if that happens, what it'll mean is that you'll have all this money pushed into that space, devs working remotely and all sort of still sort of culturally aligned and able to find each other. And then, you know, ideally you'll have new forms of software that make, uh, you know, new productivity take off. But I think the, the, the big effect is that you're pushing a lot of money into like into this crypto sphere, while also, as you know, Nil Run was saying, creating a lot of urgency for people to find ways to get out. People want to figure this out now. I think the urgency really is one of the most persuasive things to me is that we'll talk about this in a sec, but I often really come down on the side of things move slowly. People with power want to keep power. And for most of the time, if you're wealthy and you're you're in this world, your life is mostly fine, you know, and it's it's easy to just sort of roll along and think I would like things to be different or better. But when something comes along and cracks the windshield you've been looking out of, suddenly you see that you're vulnerable, the things you value are vulnerable, and you want to restructure not only your life, but these larger systems sooner rather than later. Yeah, I think we're looking at a lot of at a lot of urgency there. And it's particularly urgency on the part of people, uh, you know, particularly software developers and particularly crypto software developers, who I think with the advent of, you know, things like Urbit, have, because of that, have the most leverage in making new interesting things. So this one is a little bit hard for me to figure out exactly how to formulate, but it's basically this idea that this kind of feedback loop where you get more money in crypto, 
people are then able to pay, like pay developers. So more developers end up wanting to work in it. Uh, they're pushed offshore into other places by, you know, various regulations. And then because there's this, these new opportunities for them to make better forms of software, they then are able to create this like feedback loop where the things they're making are then things that are in more demand, which then causes more money to flow in there. This is highly speculative, but these are the lines that I'm kind of playing around with right now. And we've seen this cycle already with the ICOs, right? Like a lot of the ICO activity in 2017, 2018 was in the US. And then it took about a year or two of the ICO boom for like the SEC to really come down hard. They basically like assembled the hammer and then dropped it. And that was like, I think we're seeing something similar with DeFi, where if you look at it, you know, DOJ has set up a criminal division for crypto. They had done that weird, uh, well, not weird, but they had they'd slipped in that passage in the infrastructure bill that basically outlaws like a lot of crypto developer activity, like even lightning, even like running lightning nodes, like maybe... Uh, could be considered illegal. There's also the Treasury Department's ruling. So they basically set up a lot of stuff to start hitting crypto. And now we're starting to see the hammer drop. And I think that's creating like a panic uh, now on Twitter when you watch it, uh, which is, you know, valid. Like people should be concerned about this. These are like, uh, these are big sanctions being applied. These are, these are like a first in history of like attacking sort of a technology. It's like, imagine banning the printing press. I guess that probably happened, but uh, we're, we're basically seeing like the modern day equivalent of like banning the printing press. Oh, no, it definitely happened. There were, you know, confiscations, um, like, you know, licenses needed. So. Where's it the devil? <laughs> no, but I mean, there were licenses needed, confiscations, stuff like that. Like it's, it, it, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of similarities there. We've spent this time talking about what we think are the different catalysts that have occurred in the last few years to really push this movement toward a network age. Though I think as a group, we're a little bit divided about exactly the pace of this moving forward and whether or not we're going to get to this network age fast or Slowly, is this going to be something that we will be involved in in the next few years, or is this going to be something that our our children will be exploring? And I think it's a really interesting question as to like, you know, boys, when are we going to be living in the network state? I think we're honestly like, as we've said, a lot has already changed. Like, I just don't want to like lose sight of that. Like, things are already moved incredibly quickly, both due to the first COVID and then Ukraine war, and now sort of like this impending crackdown on DeFi and crypto more broadly. So I think like aspects are going to move incredibly quickly um, and continue in that direction. I, I always think back to like that, just the num like the size of the crypto economy. And that has been growing so quickly, even though of course it goes up and then down, like we have bears and bulls, um, but it's overall growing enormously. That said, I'm not positive. Like, I don't think everyone's like going to leave, like the top devs are all going to leave Europe if, if Europe cracks down on them. I think they'll like go a little bit underground. I think there's a lot of inertia in terms of how humans uh, sort of culturally 
um, just like live. But I think on the sort of size of the economy and the implications that'll have on how many people are working in crypto, how influential crypto is on society and culture formation more broadly, I think that'll move very, very quickly. So this is, I've been trying to not be so fast to say things will happen on a really fast timeline since I think I overpredicted that in COVID. I think, first of all, I didn't predict how fast remote work would happen then. And so I can't really take any credit for that. And then I overestimated how fast there would be, you know, significant financial issues, let's say in, in the U.S., and as we just mentioned, that turned out to that that time that differing timeline actually turned out to be really material in what happened with the you know the outcome. But I will say that regardless of timing, I think there are three big catalysts, and once they all happen, that will things will move pretty rapidly at that point, like within let's see you know, something like you know probably six to eighteen months. And I think the three big catalysts are one more crypto run up, like let's imagine ETH at twenty thirty k. Uh, so you're getting like, you know, about a 10xing from here, essentially a crypto bull cycle. And that would put us with, you know, probably when you add up everything, a few more like, you know, 5 trillion in crypto. I think if you get to something like 10, then it gets really interesting. But let's just say something like, you know, 5 to 10 trillion. Uh, the next catalyst would uh, that can happen simultaneously and actually may happen prior would be the smoothing out of the rough edges in Urbit. Um, and I think those are, you know, again, things that we're talking about a six to 24 month timeline for it to be like very, very smooth and also easy for normal people to get on via hosting and stuff like that. And that's important because I should plug, you know, Justin Murphy's excellent social AI article. We can link to that in the notes, but I think that that's a prerequisite for us not being in a situation where we have all this crypto money, but then the types of systems we have to manipulate it are just like Reddit or Twitter. And then the final one would be having jurisdictions arise that make it easy for at least leaders of projects, let's imagine like these Tornado Cash devs, for example, to be able to easily get like residency or citizenship, because then I think people can, once they have those more solid physical bases for people who are doing riskier activities with regards to the US government, I think then they'll be able to be a lot more productive and that'll un like, you know, unlock a lot of further uh, software and financial development. Mm -hmm. I, I think those three catalysts are totally right, and we're probably going to discuss those in a second part to this episode in the future. But everything you said does make me wonder, who exactly is this network age for? Who is going to participate in it, and what timeline is that on? Because it it wouldn't be so hard to persuade me that a certain subset of people probably you know, one we belong to, people who are either already working in Web3 or people with a lot of money or people who have already taken one step out the door of this old system will be running around in a parallel economy and social circle. But I, I have real questions about the degree to which this trickles down to a regular person, even someone who is, you know, above average intelligence, above average income, maybe works in the traditional tech sector, to what degree is any of this going to affect their life in the next few years in a real tangible day-to-day -day way? I'm, I'm just not sure. Because these, these systems, as I said before, power loves to keep power and is, people are very invested in slowing this down. 
So there's three groups here, right? There's the leaders that Tim talked about, and they have like a lot of reason to exit because like they're getting personally charged with criminal, uh, you know, criminal charges just for doing decentralized software, just for creating business. Um, so you have that group that like it definitely makes sense for them to exit into the network age immediately, and like we can help you with that. Um, legally and sort of like from a personal life perspective. Emotionally, we'll provide counseling for you as you separate from your old lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, just, you know, book something on my Calendly. You can uh, you can cry into the Zoom call and we can uh, get through it. Um, but yeah, the second group is kind of like the devs. And, you know, are they athletes? Are they oil? I think some of them are athletes and some are oil. They're all great people at the end of the day. Mm, um, interest, interesting dichotomy, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and what they're getting is basically like massive lifestyle improvement. So like living twice as well for half as much. Um, the one thing we haven't quite solved there yet is sort of like, I think sort of dating and the kind of broader societal thing. That's what we're sort of shifting into. Um, but those people, I think it already makes total sense for them to exit just from kind of a huge improvement in their lifestyle. And we already see that happening today. Like, it's not just Urbit, it's also uh, more broadly like Costa Rica, Mexico, Portugal. They're flooded with digital nomads. A ton of tech guys and girls are working out of those places and they do it for the lifestyle benefits. The third group is sort of like what you asked about, Bitchell, which is sort of like the um, basically like the average person. So I think the average person will be affected. I think that'll move slower. Um, but when you get an economy moving towards what Tim Lex said of like five to 10 trillion, when you're hitting that scale, like there are a lot of things needed that isn't just um, software development. So you need marketing, you need writing, uh, you need sales, you need operations. So like this will have huge impacts. And because our businesses are distributed sort of like Binance, like look how Binance operates. Um, they, yeah, they have people around the world. And so like if you're capable and I was just having... Um, if you're a capable business owner and you have, say, a marketing firm, you can participate in this regardless of where you are. Like I had drinks with these two guys who run a marketing agency in El Salvador and they're like, yeah, because of COVID, uh, we used to do mostly like physical events and then we moved it all to like online marketing. And now, you know, we work with a lot of American companies because all they care about is our portfolio and our results. They don't really give a shit that we're El Salvadorian. The fact that we live in El Salvador just means we have a lower sort of cost basis for our product, which means we can outcompete sort of like how we used to outsource manufacturing. Now we're outsourcing uh, service jobs and eventually probably white collar as well. I have a very clear mental framework for this, which is it, it's it's on the same lines that you're talking about, but I think for Bitchell it'll be even clearer. So we talked about one, or I talked about one of the catalysts being jurisdictions arising that make it easy for people to get residency or citizenship and live there. And we're sort of just on the edge of that. I think people know some of the places that might be, although it's, you know, very early days, hopefully it moves faster. What I would predict would happen then is as that attracts devs and disproportionately people, you know, like leading uh, very high value projects, what will happen is the people who are living in those jurisdictions, either let's call them like, you know, the ordinary people who were there before, uh, you know, these like uh, residency openings uh, or the people who then also move there, I think they'll benefit disproportionately. And we actually, I, I saw this in, if you looked at the difference in um, somewhere in Ukraine, like Kiev from, you know, post Maidan revolution to 2021, um, it had actually grown a lot economically across a lot of 
sectors and a big reason for that was just that like you did have it become this huge tech outsourcing center and that had a very real trickle down effect across uh, a lot of the economy in ways that were very noticeable in terms of you know what types of like you know restaurants there were other services like things like like things like that there was money to spend and a growing middle class yeah there was yeah, there was a lot of like expensive cars in Kiev. There was like nice hair salons. Uh, there was like the entire the trickle down economy. I think was entirely real because it's not like once you have money, uh, they actually were spending it um, a lot in the local economy. And it was weird how it was so local. Like, yeah, it was an outsourcing shop, but like unlike sort of what I see with sort of jurisdictions that just try to get tourists, Ukraine had a lot of job creation from that because it wasn't just people moving there to buy a property. It was people setting up local business. You think people were investing in the local community in a way that is atypical for a, a lot of the way that travel happens now? Yeah, I think that, well, not only were they investing in the local community, it was local people participating in the community. And I want to clarify... Yeah, local business I owners. want to clarify the thing about cars, because I mean, I think everyone's familiar with like pretty top-heavy sort of extractive economies where you'll see like expensive cars in the city. I think the noticeable thing about, you know, 2022 Kiev is that like it was pretty, you know, broadly spread. There was It wasn't just like you see some like Bentleys in it. It was like, you, it, it was very clear that you had like a lot of economic activity across like across the board and yeah there was a significant amount of reinvestment so i think that what will happen is you'll get a, a region that does this for its sort of normal people providing you know normal services that we're used to we'll see those happening and then to the degree that that pressures other jurisdictions to try to get this business i think their people will then be able uh be able to benefit so a couple of questions I have are, what steps do you think that governments or other people in power, whether they're, you know, technology companies or a larger state, what steps are they going to take to try to hold power in this traditional method? And the second question, do you think that those steps are going to slow down this transition to a network age or actually catalyze interest in it the way that the arrest of people involved with tornado cash and the sanctioning of that seems to have really sparked energy, anger, and frankly, some excitement among Web3 enthusiasts. So I see them doing like a approach of basically kind of a mix of things. One is sort of just slow rolling all of crypto by not giving any regulatory clear um, guidance. The second is they'll do actions like they just did with Tornado Cash, where they try to make examples of people. We saw this with um, Silk Road, by the way. Like this isn't the first time they did this with um, uh, WikiLeaks as well. So like this is a normal strategy for the powers that be. You both like slowball it, and then you make examples of a few key people to scare people. And then the third thing is like you maybe go like really draconian, and like I think people are underestimating the risk of that. Um, so like one example was Kiev actually, I think was U Ukraine was debating uh, kind of clamping down on the power of local um, local software developers because it was creating this sort of like new sphere of influence that kind of rivaled the old interests of Ukraine. Interestingly, would that work? Uh, we already saw with the war, like all the dev talent just like got out of Ukraine very, very quickly and like had almost no interruptions. You know, our friends are in Lisbon. It's this, it's business as usual. So like 
I, I think all you can really do is like cut yourself out of the economic activity. You can like slow it down and cut yourself out. You can't really stop it from happening at this point. It's organic. It's happening on its own. Do you, it's, the examples you brought up there are interesting, the Silk Road and WikiLeaks, because to, to some degree have those attempts at censorship not been quite successful? I mean, you know, people are in jail. Those websites are not running in in the same way and is it like as simple as well the software and tech we have now are more robust or is it do you think there's going to be a larger organizing principle to to move where those people couldn't it has the benefit of all this economic activity behind it like wikileaks didn't have any economic activity behind it you know it it achieved its objective of basically bringing awareness and that was like fine you know snowden had a big impact as well on people's um minds you know and, and we kind of like that's kind of drove a lot of people to be interested in creating privacy tools but it didn't have the economic power of the crypto economy behind it so i think this is just night and day sort of different and like uh yeah i think like you know how would you stop the crypto economy it's i, I just don't think you can I think you can slow it, um, and I think you can move where it happens. Like Tim Luck was talking about, some jurisdictions will benefit, and that's like that's why some jurisdictions will ultimately champion it. Like how El Salvador has been championing Bitcoin, and why they're interested in passing a DAO law, why they're looking at passing fifty laws to make it, you know, easier to do business, immigrate, uh, you know, invest. They, they see opportunity, and so I think you know, almost like. Cracking down on it almost just concentrates the benefits to the next next jurisdiction. So, you know, if you crack down it across all the EU and you just start randomly imprisoning software developers working in crypto, you drive like the scale of the EU, like all that software talent, all that money, you drive it towards jurisdictions that are friendly towards crypto. One thing I would say as a, to some degree, I am kind of a US booster. Or I try to like you know, push back on narratives that are too doomy about it. It's not a monolith. And I, to answer Bitchell's question clearly, I think that all of this sort of draconian cracking down, while in the near term, it will have some chilling effects because of the size of the crypto economy, as Nilrun mentioned, there's a lot of counter pressure to do things differently. I would say already in US Congress across both like, you know, the House and the Senate uh, and across parties, there's significant, significant appetite for doing, you know, for doing a bill that actually gives a lot of safe harbors to crypto and like incentivizes it. And that's a direct result of both the economic scale involved, the amount of lobbying that goes into it as a result of that, uh, the ability ability to sort of, you know, politicians are always going to be angling to find a new power base. So I think it's a mistake to treat the current configuration as stable and permanent. And I think to fully answer your question, I think that these current actions that are, as you said, generating a lot of energy, I think they'll generate some energy for politicians too, because they, there's, you know, chaos is a ladder and this is creating some unexpected chaos and energy that I think actually becomes sort of more attractive for politicians to potentially exploit, not less. So over this episode, we've actually gone through a fair amount. This one has been pretty dense. And I think we started with the catalyst that got us here, particularly COVID and the Russo-Ukraine war, in terms of upending a lot of our expectations, proving concept on a number of things, realigning you know, what people think is possible and where things are going. And I mean... For me, it's been really 
yeah, this has been really challenging to think about because of all the implications it has for my own life, even where I'll be living, what I'll be working in. And so what I, you know, I think would be cool to discuss in our next part would be what are going to be the coming catalysts? We've talked a little bit about what we think some of those factors might be, but I think it would be cool to get into more detail about, you know, what is going to impact our lives, what's going to drive flows of people, money, activity, uh, and culture, and just get into that like a little bit more specifically. Crypto for nations, it's happening, you know, crypto for nations. I think like it's going to be really fascinating. Like I could see dominoes falling really quickly in this regard. Like, you know, countries just like setting up, uh, going off their their kind of like legacy fiat coins and just like moving to sound money. And then, yeah, I think it'll be really interesting when the jurisdiction makes a really explicit play for people. Mexico's done some play in this regard. Like it has a very easy visa process. When we see one country that's just like, hey, we want the leaders of the crypto economy to live here. And they're like giving out passports. They're making it incredibly easy to move there to domicile businesses there. And they're like, we will go to bat for you as individual citizens of our country against random extradition or random application of uh, outdated laws to software technology. I think that'll be really fascinating. I think I, we could see that happen very soon. Well, I think that we can all agree that whenever the network age comes, it'll be fine as long as we can all be together hanging out with our boys. So on that note, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on The Network Age. See you later, friends.